We're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 3 and also Matthew chapter 10. But in 1 Kings 3, we'll be starting at verse 16. Scripture says, Then came there two women that were harlots under the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. And I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it, or she lay on it. And she arose at midnight, took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept, laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this one said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. And thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, This one says, This is my son that's alive, but it's your son that's dead. And the other one says, No, it's your son that's dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. That's an old English way of saying she had deep emotional feelings toward that child. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other woman said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it, for she is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 34. says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes, or his enemies, shall be they of his own household. Amen. With the help of the Lord this morning, I want to preach a message titled, Bring Me a Sword. Bring Me a Sword. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful to be here in this place. Lord, you knew before this day began every soul that would be here. So we pray as we open your word together that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that our hearts would be open to hear your voice, and that hearing your voice, we would respond to you by faith, we pray. We ask you to anoint me, to use me, to speak your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The picture that is often painted of Jesus Christ, particularly in a modern Western world context, is that of a mild-mannered, gentle person, a man who speaks only of love and who wants all the children in the playground to play nicely together so that at the end of the day we can say that a good time was had by everyone. It's an image of a very forgiving individual, a man who is tolerant, accepting and politically palatable to everyone. Now, there is no doubt whatsoever that the manifestation or the declaration of Jesus on earth 
was the greatest act of God's love. It was. But we must remember that we cannot comprehend how great that love is without also understanding how powerful and how unwavering the law and the justice of God are. The reason that such a demonstration of love was necessary was that a holy God was faced with a sinful creation who had rejected him, who had disobeyed him, and who had introduced all manner of sin and wickedness into this world, and they continued to do so. The wicked creativity of humanity seems to know no limitation. And so a separation between God and his creation was unable to be spanned. No one could cross that gap until God declared himself in flesh and crossed that gap but also paid the price in our place. And yes, the Bible does describe Jesus as the Prince of Peace. It tells us that he is the one that can bring peace into our lives, that he is the one that speaks to a storm and can calm the wind and the waves. The scriptures also teach us that we should do everything we can to be at peace with others, that we should not be troublemakers, that we should not be going out of our way to stir up strife. And you might say, well, Pastor, what about the things that we we sing at Christmas time? You know, like glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. It is very true that Jesus did come to bring peace, but he did not come to bring world peace. He did not come to bring peace between nations or between people, but he came to bring peace between man and God. That's the peace that he came to bring. Because mankind is at odds with God. Mankind is in opposition to God. Mankind has broken the law of God and stands guilty of the judgment of God. And he came to bring peace in that relationship. He came with an offer of redemption. That if we would do the will of God, that's the goodwill toward men part. You know, we sing Christmas carols and we think peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That means that God just wants us all to be happy and to have a good life, and his thoughts are good towards us, and there's a certain amount of that that's true, but the goodwill toward men part is if we do his will, we can have peace between him and us. That's what it's talking about. But this Prince of Peace also said in our text in Matthew that he did not come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword, and that what he brought with him what he would speak and what he would introduce and the message that he would preach and his gospel would actually cause division in families and in homes. So what, what kind of troublemaker was this Jesus really? He's caused, come to stir up grief and to cause all manner of trouble in our lives and in our families. And I want to hopefully try to help us understand this, that Jesus was not saying that his purpose was to create conflict or that there was nothing that he loved more than seeing a good fight in a family. You know, that that relative you have that you hope doesn't come to Christmas dinner because they always stir up trouble. Jesus was not interested in conflict in families. In fact, he's interested in the opposite because the Bible teaches us clearly about love, about respect, about honor, about obedience within a family, and that the family is actually God's design, and when the family happens God's way, goodwill toward men. When the family happens God's way, it is actually a wonderful thing. 
But what Jesus wanted us to understand was that when you choose to believe in him and when you choose to live your life the way that he wants you to, to follow and obey his word, division will come. Division will come. He wasn't literally handing out swords. But what he was saying was that faith in him will put you on a different pathway from those around you. And as some of you, if not many of you, can testify and acknowledge this morning that when you make a decision to serve God, it can generate strong reactions from friends and family around about you. Amen. You see, we, we need to understand something. The Bible says that we have all sinned. Every single one of us. There's not a single person that was sinless except for Jesus Christ. And we have all sinned, the Bible says. It, no, no rich or poor are excluded. There's no ethnicity that is excluded. There's no, there's no any section of society that gets a pass. But we have all sinned, the Bible says. Not one of us is sinless. And in that condition, in our sinful condition, none of us were trying to live a life that pleased God. We've heard it through Sister Liz's testimony this morning about the children's church and also through some of our songs. We were spiritually in darkness. We were in darkness. We all had that in common. Now, there's a lot of diversity in this room. There's cultural diversity. There's generational diversity. There's some of you that are highly educated that have been to university. I like to tell people I've been to university. I went there to play tennis when I was young. There's, there's great diversity in who we are, but one thing that we all have in common is that there was a point in our, to- our lives when we were in darkness, when we were in sin, when we were at odds with God. We all had that in common. And you can make a lot of changes in your life and people will get behind you and support that change. You can say, hey, you know, I've decided I'm going to lose some weight. Your friends and family say, hey, that's a great idea. I'm going to exercise. Well, hey, I'll, I'll do that with you. You know, I'm going to give up smoking. That's a great decision. We'll get behind that. I'm I'm going to give up junk food. I'm going to go back to school and finish my education. I'm going to go work for charity. There's so many decisions we can make. And friends and family will say, hey, that's a really good thing to do. You can change your politics and they'll get behind that. You can change your career and they'll get behind that. You can apparently change your gender identity and they'll get behind that as well. And everybody will say, go for it. You see, none of these decisions change the fact that we are still in darkness. None of these decisions change the fact that we are still in sin. But you make a decision to be born again, to begin to live for Jesus Christ, and that can be a whole different story. I have seen in my own lifetime Jesus deliver somebody from drug addiction from suicidal ideation, from all different kinds of brokenness. And their family are thrilled to see that they are better, that they are in a healthier place. But when that same person begins to live a lifestyle that is guided by the Word of God, a lifestyle that is built on and directed by godly principles, out of nowhere comes a sword. Out of nowhere, it's like, well, do you really have to do that? And it causes a problem. Because you see now... You're bringing a light to darkness. And darkness is not a fan. (laughs) Darkness does not like the light. You've, You've made decisions that challenge somebody. You've made decisions about yourself that make statements about other people's lives 
without actually saying a word. You see, the sword that Jesus spoke of represents division. It represents decisions and choices that are made, and division and choices produce strong feelings and opinions. Let me give you a very current day example. If you go on social media, you go on Facebook and you go to the Premier, Mr. Mark McGowan's Facebook page, and you read one of his latest updates about what's happening in WA in response to the pandemic, whether it's this restriction or that restriction, or you've got to wear a mask here, or you don't have to wear a mask there, or you're allowed to travel here, but when you come home, you've got to quarantine for a year, or whatever it might be. Whenever there is an update, read some of those comments. There are thousands of them. There are people saying, thank you for looking after us. We think you're doing an amazing job. You're the best premier ever. There are others that are saying, we hate you. You're a tyrant. We hope that something terrible happens to you. And all because there is a decision that's been made. It's a decision that's been made that impacts the lives of other people. And the truth of life is that there are very few decisions any of us make that don't impact people around us. And decisions bring reactions. Every time the government makes a decision, it generates division. I'm almost at the point of putting a sign at the front door of the house saying, we don't discuss COVID here anymore. Just sick of talking about it. You know, it's just, there's got to be something else to talk about. But it generates strong feelings. Some people feel secure with the restrictions. Others want to visit family members over east. There is strong emotion that gets involved because there's something about human nature whether we want to acknowledge or not this morning, that we love to criticize those who are decision makers. Those that have the responsibility of setting a direction, of implementing a policy to include or exclude certain behaviors and conduct. We like to be critical. A child dislikes a parent's choice. A student disagrees with a teacher's decision. An employee complains about their boss. Anybody ever worked anywhere where people didn't complain about the boss? Anywhere? Even if you work for yourself, you probably complain about yourself sometimes. <laughs> Citizens complain about the government and on and on it goes. And look, the truth is that sometimes our perspectives are valid. Sometimes decisions aren't always great and those choices could have been made in a better way or in a better pattern. But you know, the underlying issue is that man wants to be his own God. That's the underlying issue. I want to be the king of my world. I don't want anybody else making choices. And as a result of that, we you know what happens when we take control of our lives and make our own choices? We make a really good mess. And then we are very quick to judge the choices of others and yet blind to the poor ones that we make ourselves. We look at other somebody else and we say, well, they should know better. I know they've had this, but that's not acceptable. And then we make a bad decision and then we say, well, you don't know my story. Don't judge me. That's humanity. We give ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. We put somebody else in jail quicker than we can blink. See, we need to understand that life is really just a collection of choices that we make over a long period of time. And each choice presents another choice and another and another. And you can end up wondering, how in the world did I get here? And that may never have been your original intention, but it is the product of choices that you made. 
And we want to point the finger at everybody else, at society, at family, at school, at fill in the blank. But ultimately, although other people's choices impact us, where we are is a product of the choices that we make. I'll give you an example. Brother Guy and I leave church after the service this morning. We head out the driveway. I go left. He goes right. Very soon, sooner for him than me, we'll find ourselves at a T intersection, at another choice. But because our first choice was different, we're not at the same choice. We've arrived at a different choice. And then I'll make another decision and he'll make another decision and, and so on and so on it goes and we will be end up at different locations because of the choices that we made. Life is full of intersections, of choices. And every choice you make has an outcome. It's become a little bit of a cliche, but it's still a true statement. You can make your own choices, but you cannot choose your own outcomes. I can decide that I am going to eat KFC three meals a day, seven days a week, but I cannot choose what my health will be like. I cannot say that for the next year it's chocolate cake five times a day and I'm going to try out for the Olympic team. Unless maybe it's weightlifting or wrestling or something. But you can make your own choices, but you cannot choose the consequences. Choices have consequences. And our lives are full of choices and full of the consequences of those choices. And just like the streets that we drive on in the city of Perth, there are some intersections, there are some roads where U-turns are possible, and there are some where they are not. There are some choices in life that you can wind back, but there are others that you simply cannot reverse. There are decisions you make that you cannot undo. And one choice leads to another choice, leads to another choice. There's a very sobering example of this in the book of Genesis where we read about Abraham, a man of faith, a man that God called to follow him. And as part of his journey where God was leading him, he took his nephew Lot with him because his nephew's father, it seems, has passed away. And Lot travels with Abraham and they're, 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 they keep stock. They've got sheep and goats and maybe cows as well. And, and as God is blessing them, their, their, their flocks and their herds are increasing. And there become some squabbles between the men that work for them because they're, they're trying to graze in the same patch of grass. And there's a bit of, I was here first, and I was here first. Human nature, doesn't matter how far back you go. And eventually Abraham calls Lot and he said, look, we're family. It's not right that we're squabbling like this. It's not right that there's this dispute. He said, the whole countryside is before us. You choose where you want to go and I'll go the other way. And we could get into a lot, was a lot about what was involved in that decision-making process. But the Bible says that Lot looked out over the plains, the, the flat country, the easy country. It was well watered. There was water and maybe springs, whatever was there. But in that same place that he chose were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he went there and that's where he sailed. And the Bible lets us know in a fairly short period of time that he pitched his tent, the exact expression is, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He set up camp looking at one of the most wicked cities the world had ever seen. It was the first thing he saw every morning. It was the last thing he saw. I was going to say when he zipped up his tent, probably didn't have a zip at that stage, but when he tied his tent closed late at night, it was the last thing he saw. And then after that, we see he's living in that city. One choice led to another choice led to another choice and that city becomes so vile 
and so repulsive that God said, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy that city. And it's full of all manner of immorality and wickedness and, and, and horrible things. And so God says, you know, Abraham's praying because his nephew's in that city. And out of God's mercy, he sends a couple of angels there to try and bring Lot and his wife and his daughters out of that city. And in they, they didn't want to leave and Lot's leaving. The angels say, don't look back. And Lot's wife looks back and she, she turns about and says into a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters flee into the mountains and then there is terrible immorality. And because the kids are downstairs, I'm not going to go into the details, but there's terrible immorality that takes place and all of it is a product of a collection of choices. And when Abraham was talking to Lot and he said, you know, let's sort this out, let's choose a place to go, there's no way in Lot's mind that he's thinking he's going to end up in that situation. There's no way that you would say to him, Lot, if you go down this pathway, you're going to end up broken and and without your wife and in all kinds of wicked immorality with your daughters and drunkenness. He would have said, you're insane, I will never do that. But one choice leads to another choice, leads to another choice. And Lot finds himself in a terrible, terrible situation that he would never have thought was possible. His choices brought horrific destruction to his family. You see, there are things we do that with some things you can wind it back. You can make it right. You can apologize. You can repay. You can restore. You can turn things around. But there are some things that when you've turned that corner, you cannot undo that situation. When lives are broken, as so many are, and addictions and all manner of abuse abounds, it's very rarely the consequence of one choice. But it's usually a pathway that often seemed harmless to begin with, but then began down what we often refer to as a slippery slope. And the destination was never in the plan. But the incredible thing about Jesus is that regardless of where that pathway has taken you, or how far you think you've gone, or how many absolutely terrible choices you may have made, the moment you turn to him, he will meet you right where you are. He's not going to send you an SMS, an email, and says, well, when you've cleaned up your act, got your issues sorted out, and, you know, you're a little bit more socially palatable, I'm happy to meet with you. Give me a call when you've sorted out your junk. He doesn't say that. Because, you know, he sees every turn that we make. Sees every choice that we make. You know, we talked about Sunday school. And I'd love to stand up here and tell you this morning that from the time I started Sunday school till the time I passed to this church, I was the model saint. They had my picture on the wall in the church. But I went through adolescence like everybody else goes through adolescence. And doesn't, let me tell you something, young people. When you go through adolescence, you do not have to walk away from God. That's a lie that the world would have you to believe. You can serve God at every stage of your life. But because I was stubborn, pig-headed, and foolish, I resisted and I rebelled during those years. I'm thankful the Lord kept me from much of my own stupidity. But there came a point where I realized I was making a collection of really dumb choices. And the pathway they were taking me down was not going to end well. And the moment I began to say, God, this is not where I want to go, he was there. The psalmist said he is our very present help. You know, if you submitted that verse to an English teacher, they would say he's either present or not. You don't have to put very. But there's an emphasis there. There's an emphasis that he's not nearby. He's not, he is our very present help. 
in time of trouble. And the moment you say, God, I need you. I've made a whole bucket load of stupid choices and I've messed everything up that I could possibly mess up. He is there in an instant because he saw every choice you made. He saw every decision that you took. He saw every intersection that you didn't even look both ways and you just charged across the street. Because Jesus said this in Luke 4 and 18. He said, this is the reason I came. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. If that's strange language to you, that means that he has equipped me and empowered me to preach the gospel to the poor. It's not talking just about people without money. It's talking about people that were without morals or values. and They didn't have anything left. He said, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. He's not talking about when you bumped your knee on the kitchen table when he's talking about bruised. He's talking about wounded in your spirit. He's talking about broken hearts and pain and offense that hasn't been resolved. The Lord said, I've seen every choice. I've seen every decision, whether you made it, your parents made it, or somebody else made it. I know every single turn you took to end up where you are today, but that's the reason I came. At that choice, you got brokenhearted. At that choice, you were bruised. At that choice, you became a prisoner of something. He said, but I've come to set you free. I've come to heal you. I've come to bring you deliverance. But he brought a sword. (laughs) Because there's going to be some things he's going to have to cut out of our lives to make us whole again. Brother Thomas taught an excellent lesson on Sunday night about what it means to be in covenant and how one one of the main meanings of that word covenant was something that is cut out and how he spoke about how the Lord cut out his people that they belonged to him. They were his prized possession. I'm going to go back to the story that we began with from 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon is the son of David. He's just recently become the king. Seems he was still a little young. And as he is faced with the task of being the king of God's people, the Lord talks to him one night and says, what do you want, want, Solomon? Gives him a blank check, whatever you like. And Solomon said, he basically said, he said, I'm I'm just a child. He said, how can I lead these people? How can I, such an incredible people? He said, how, he said, give me wisdom. And the Lord said, because you didn't ask for all this other stuff, I'll give you that and the wisdom that you asked for. And not long after that prayer, he finds himself confronted with this dispute. Two harlots, or we would call them prostitutes, having given birth to sons around about the same time. One has tragically rolled over on her infant during the night and suffocated it. And now there are accusations of a dead child being swapped with a living child during the night and both Mothers claiming that the living child was theirs and the dead child was the others and and arguing backwards and forwards about which one belonged to which lady. You've got to remember there are no DNA tests. There's no blood tests. There's no hospital records. Considering their profession, it's possible that the identity of the fathers is also unknown. There's not really a lot of material that Solomon's got to work with. He's a man, they just look like newborn babies to him. You know, it's interesting how men see babies compared to ladies. When I get an SMS from a man telling me that someone's had a baby, it'll say, so-and-so had their baby. 
They get an SMS from a lady who'll say, so-and-so had their baby, this is its name, it was this long, it weighed this much and looks like its grandmother on its mother's side. So here's Solomon looking at a dead infant and a living infant. He's got no point of reference. But he prayed a prayer that God would give him wisdom. And in the midst of that situation with the wisdom that came from God, Solomon says, bring me a sword. Bring me a sword. And he instructs his men to cut the child in half. Give half to each lady. Problem solved. They get half a child each. Problem solved. But then the woman, who's the child actually, is the child's actual mother, the one who is the child of the living baby, begs the king and says, please don't do that, but give the child to her. I would rather the child live than I lost it than have the child die in this terrible way. The other woman's attitude is basically, well, if I can't have the child, neither can she. Cut it in half. And at that moment, the heart of the true mother is revealed in that she would rather give up her child than see it killed. This is what the Lord just impressed upon my heart when I was meditating on that story, that when the sword was introduced to the situation, the hearts were exposed. And when the sword was introduced to the situation, the hearts were exposed because the writer of Hebrews told us in 4 and 12, he said, the word of God is quick. It's, power, it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces down, dividing even the soul and the spirit, things that we can, we can look at but we can't really separate to the joints and the marrow is a discerner. They're able to understand the thoughts and the intent of the heart. More modern translation of that verse says the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And when you introduce this sword into your situation, it's going to get right down into your heart and it's going to expose what is really going on. It's going to reveal not just the things you're thinking, but why you're thinking them. God can't only just see what you think. He even knows the intention behind your thoughts. And sometimes you don't even know what your intentions are. Sometimes we have blind spots to where our thoughts even come from. But the scripture says that the word of God is so powerful. It is so alive that when you introduce it to your heart and your mind, God can get right down to what you're thinking, why you're thinking it, and how he wants to heal that situation it is definitely true that when you choose to follow Jesus the sword is going to separate you from some people who will not understand the choices that you've made I want to promise you something this morning when you open your heart to the word of God to the love of God to the power of God it can separate you from addiction it can separate you from brokenness It can separate you from a hurt that you never thought would ever have a chance of being corrected. It can heal you. It can wash your sins away. It can make you brand new. Hallelujah. And if you will allow the word of God, if you will allow the sword to guide your choices, it will order your steps. When you come to an intersection, you say, God, which way do I go? The psalmist said in 119 and 105, thy word. 
is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so when you need to make choices, when you need to make decisions, the kind of choices that will influence your life's direction, you need to be able to say, bring me the sword. Bring me the sword. I need something to speak into my... You know, not every choice you make is life-changing. God has given us a brain. Not every choice we make is life-changing. When I travel and I'm up there, up in that airplane, I don't think God's very interested in whether I have the chicken or the beef. I don't get on the plane and say, Lord, when that hostess comes down the aisle, give me direction, Lord. And if you're sitting toward the back, don't pray that only the vegetarian alternative is left. We are, God gives us the freedom to choose. But when you need to make choices that may have impact both in the present and down the road. Young people, we're praying for our students today. When you make choices, there are decisions you'll make in your youth. There are intersections that you will come to that depending on your choice will dramatically impact where your life goes. When you find yourself in that situation, whether you're young or old, these are some things you can do. The first thing you should always do is pray. Ask God for direction. And while you're praying, reach for your sword. Consider the commandments of God's word, the principles that come from God's word. Sometimes you don't need to pray. It's there in black and white. Other times you need to say, God, there's not a literal commandment for this. I need to know how to apply your word to this situation. If you need to pray, if you need to reach for the sword, you need to seek godly counsel. You need to talk to the people that God has placed in your life to help to give you direction. And when you've done those things, listen, hear, and do. I want you to stand with me this morning. It's a warm Sunday morning. I thank you for your patience. We need to understand that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But he knew that the gospel message would bring division. He knew. He he didn't want to cause trouble in family, but he knew that when family members made a decision to walk with him, there was going to be other people that weren't so happy about that decision. (laughs) He knew it. But he said, if you'll hear me, if you'll listen, I'll guide you. I'll direct you. We could... We could take the time and pass this microphone around the room this morning and ask people about their lives before they invited God in and then after and how it's affected their choices and how, where they've ended up because of that. And I promise you to be directed by him is always, always, always the best outcome because if you let God guide your footsteps, he will take you places and bless you and direct you that you would never have thought were possible. Hallelujah. While we stand in his presence this morning, I'm going to ask our students to come. If you're in school of any age, primary school, 